I'll invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 17. Uh, as most of you know, we're engaged in an exposition of the book of Hebrews. And uh, last week, we are nearing the end of Hebrews chapter 7. And we hit Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, which says, Therefore he is able to also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is a verse that describes the, the current role of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a priest. He is seated in heaven at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and He is always praying to His Father for us who draw near to God through Him. In fact, it says that Jesus always lives. This is Jesus' full-time job, if you will. He gives full attention to praying. Jesus prayed much while He was on earth. It says in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, that He would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. And it says on one occasion before choosing His disciples in Luke 6.12 that He spent the whole night in prayer. But now His times of prayer are much more than His times of prayer ever were upon the earth since He always lives to make intercession for us. Now, last week, I asked this question about this verse. I hadn't really asked this, thought about this question really before, but I said, what's He praying? Like, I've always known Jesus is up there and He's the high priest and He's praying, but I thought about what... What is it exactly that he's praying? Well, I do believe we have an answer to this question. It's found in John 17. This is known as the high priestly prayer. J.C. Ryle calls this the most wonderful prayer that was ever made upon the earth. So I decided that the best for us is to take a week off of Hebrews to really think and examine about what it is that Christ is. This is his high priestly role. What is it that he prays? So above my chapter here in John 17 says the high priestly prayer. That is a prayer that Jesus makes, prays on behalf of others. Now technically this isn't a prayer that Jesus is praying during His current role as high priest because right now He's in heaven as our high priest, but this prayer was made when He was on earth really anticipating His priestly role. But I do believe these things are typical of the things that Jesus prays today because I don't believe the heart of Jesus changed from when He was on earth to now when He is in heaven. I think these things still beat in His heart. His heart has always been one of love for His disciples, desiring the best for them. And in the context here leading up to John 17 and John 13, 14, 15, 16, this is called the Upper Room Discourse. It's when Jesus was with His disciples giving His last sermons, if you will, his last instructions, and uh, you just filled with care and compassion. It starts in John 13 with Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And then as Phil read for us from John 14, comforting his disciples by promising of his return in the place he's preparing. He, he counsels them how to live in John 15 about abiding in the vine and then promises his Holy Spirit to come in chapter 16 as well. And now in chapter 17, He's going to pray for His disciples. Now, to be sure, we're not going to exhaust these words. We've got one sermon this Sunday, 26 verses. It's far beyond the scope of what we're going to do. In fact, J.C. Ryle has said, He that reads the words spoken by one person of the Blessed Trinity to another person by the Son to the Father must surely be prepared to find much that he cannot fully understand. There are sentences, words, and expressions in these 26 verses of this chapter which no one probably 
has ever unfolded completely. And what J.C. Ryle is saying there is that these words are deep and they're, they're mysterious and they're somewhat hard to understand. No one has plumbed the depths of them and so we're certainly not going to do that in 45 minutes today. All we can do though is in John 17 to ask this question. It's the title of my message this morning. What does Jesus pray for? What does Jesus pray for? And what I want to do is, is really go through this chapter and look for the specific requests that Jesus makes in this prayer. Now, there's much more in this prayer than specific requests. He just doesn't make a request, 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 request. Rather, even in this sermon, he, he speaks about his mission, kind of folding it in there, what, what it was that he accomplished and what it was that he desires to see happening as the disciples go out into the world. There's much in this prayer that describes His disciples, what, what Jesus did for them and how they came to faith and believed in Him. And there will be much that we leave out. But we're going to look at the specific prayer requests that Jesus has. Sometimes He prays for Himself like He does in the first five verses. Sometimes He prays for His disciples that walked and talked with Him upon the earth like Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, Bartholomew, Thomas. Some of these even are going to be prayers that He makes for us who would believe for Rock Valley Bible Church this morning. And I say the application of this text this morning isn't so much that Jesus prayed this way, though, and we should, though we can. But Jesus, when He taught His disciples to pray, taught them the Lord's Prayer, which really is the disciples' prayer, right? Matthew chapter 6, do you know it? Let's say it together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, Parents, if your kids don't know that, we're not a liturgical church, so we don't say that often. That's a good prayer to teach your children how to pray. But that's not the prayer here. What we have is we have the prayer of Jesus. This is truly the Lord's Prayer. And we're not called really to pray this, but here's what I would say though, is that these things are good to pray. If these were on the heart of Jesus to pray, certainly they ought to be on our heart to pray as well, and I think that we can. But the primary application really this morning is more direct. If Jesus expresses this heart... In these ways, our hearts ought to resonate the same way. I mean, think about it. If Jesus prays for unity, ought our heart also beat for unity? Right? And if Jesus prays for other things He's going to pray for, shouldn't our heart beat with that? I can give you my outline if you want, but I'll let that, that come. But whatever Jesus prays for, that's where our, our, our desire ought to be right along there. When, when, when God says jump, we say how high. We're willing and ready. And so likewise here. Okay, so I want to read John 17. I want you to listen for the specific prayer requests. You might even circle them or star them in your Bible. is fine. And I'm not even looking for purposes so much. I'm looking for specific things where Jesus says, this is what I pray for. I found five of them. You might find a little bit more, a little bit less, but we'll see. Jesus, John 17 verse 1, spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said... Here's Jesus. He's open, eyes open to heaven. I've not memorized this passage, so I've got to have my eyes down. If I could, I'd love to, but it's not there. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. 
Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know every, that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world." I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word, that they may be one, even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that You sent Me. The glory which You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and You in Me, that they may be perfected in unity, so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. I found five requests here. Um, first one is this, a request for glory. Verses 1 and 5. Look at verse 1. It says, Father, the hour has come. Here it is. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is a prayer for glory. It's a prayer Jesus praying for His own glory. And then also he prays the result of that is that God would be glorified as well, right? He's praying for his own glory that the end may be that God may glorify himself through the Son. Now, on the one hand, it appears to be very egotistical. 
Doesn't it? I mean, praying for your own glory. We ought never to pray, pray this for ourselves. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 45, verse 5, Are you seeking great things for yourself? Seek them not. And yet here, Jesus is seeking great things for Himself, but for Him, it's entirely appropriate. And the reason comes a few verses later in verse 5. Skipping over verse 2, where He speaks about His authority and what eternal life is in verse 3. And in verse 4, the work that Jesus did upon the earth. In verse 5, then, He explains. He says, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In this prayer, what Jesus is doing is saying, I want to be restored and returned back to where I was. Jesus said that He enjoyed a place of glory even before the world was created. Before there was a you, before there was a me, before there was an earth. It was the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and Jesus having great glory even before He created it. And Jesus is saying, I simply want to be restored back to the place where I was. And yet, though, the prayer is even bigger than this because it's not merely that Jesus wants to be back where He was. Rather, it's through His life and death and resurrection, I believe Jesus here wants something more. He wants to be restored to His former state having gone through everything that took place upon the earth. And I think you pick that up in verse 1 where he says, Father, the hour has come. If we had time, we'd trace through the the Gospel of John and and see this phrase, the hour, is used often. And uh, oftentimes Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come. In fact, he said that first to his mother Mary. She wanted him to expose himself really at the wedding of Cana. He said, no, my hour has not yet come. He was telling those around him, his brothers even, that his hour had not yet come. And he he constantly spoke, like to the the woman at the well and and to others, that this hour is coming. This hour is coming. And and you almost get this anticipation, you go through John, that that there's some hour that's coming, and when it's coming, we don't exactly know. And it's said even that the crowds couldn't seize Jesus, and John makes the comment, because his hour had not yet come. You can read in John chapter 7, verse 30 about these, these people, these mobs of people who were angry with Jesus and ready to stone Him and capture Him and, and, and they couldn't because His hour was not yet come. It's like He slipped from their grasp. But now Jesus says, the hour has come. And He's referring to the time, of course, where Jesus is going to be fully manifested, death upon the cross, resurrected, exalted to the head to the, the right hand of God, that He was indeed the Messiah to come and save Israel and they would reject, it, reject Him and He would then die for their sins. And I say that because in John chapter 12, verse 23, is the first time that Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is His last public appearance before chapter 13 when He skips away with His disciples and then His betrayal and arrest and crucifixion. But he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this is what Jesus did. He died and fell into the earth, and now Jesus is praying that his life would bear much fruit, that he would be restored to the glory of the Father. He'd be worshipped by untold millions as people come and worship him. And that's his prayer. He wants to be glorified. And the application for us is really clear. We're not to pray for ourselves to be glorified, but we are to pray that God would glorify Jesus. I mean, that's the purpose of our songs. We sing glory to our Savior. That we would worship Jesus, give Him glory for His work in our lives. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. 
Right? We want to lift high and exalt the name of Jesus. At the end of, of um, the world, the elders will be before the Lord, the angels and the myriads of people, worthy as the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor, and here it is, glory and blessing. That's glory to the Lamb. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That's what we want. We want the Son glorified. It's right along what Jesus wants as well. There's the first prayer request. What does Jesus pray for? He prays for His glory. And I believe that as He's sitting right there before the throne of the Father right now, He's saying, Father, glorify Yourself through this situation. Glorify Me. Glorify Me that You might be glorified. And I think that's like a grid through which He, he filters all of His prayers for His own glory and for the glory of the Father. The chief end of man, right, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our, our chief end is what, is what Jesus is praying for, for glory in of Himself. Well, that's the first request, glory. Second request comes in verses 11 and 15. It's protection. He's praying for protection, not for Himself. He was protected perfectly well as long as His hour hadn't come. Once the hour had come, then He was soon to die, and He knew His hand of protection would be lifted from Him. The Father would soon abandon Him on the cross so we might bear the sins of the world. But Jesus also knew that His disciples needed protection. They needed protection from the evils that would come upon them. In verses 6 through 10, Jesus describes how He came to earth and manifests Himself to the disciples. But that's not going to be our focus, like I said this morning, but it speaks about how He came and they believed and He manifested Himself in those ways. But then He prays here in verse 11, I am no longer in this world. Interesting, He's almost... In his mind, he's, he's already beyond, he's beyond the cross in his mind. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. Speaking about his disciples who he, he walked with. And he says, I come to you, Holy Father. Here it is. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given them. There it is. Keep them in your name. I think what that means is keep them trusting in you. Keep them believing in you. Keep them abiding in you. Just keep them saved, if you will. It's a strange prayer in many ways. Isn't it? I think it's strange. Keep them. This is the only way for this prayer to make sense is to believe that we're dependent upon the Lord to maintain our faith and integrity and trust in Him. Is that the only way? Now, I believe you can't lose your salvation, but the reason I believe you can't lose your salvation is because it's God is the one keeping us and protecting us. God is the power to keep us saved. That's why it says in Hebrews 7, verse 25, Therefore He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. He's able to save us forever and keep us. And that's what Jesus did upon the earth. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. So somehow Jesus was protecting them, guarding them, guiding them, keeping them saved, keeping them in His name. And I guarded them and not one of them perished except but the son of perdition so that the Scripture be fulfilled. And the implication here is He wasn't protecting the son of perdition. He wasn't protecting Judas because He knew that Judas had to fulfill Scripture. 
But he was protecting them while he was on earth, but now that he's going away, he needs his disciples to protect them because he's no longer able to do it. And I just really, his application again, don't think that you can ever stand by yourself. Hebrews 10, verse 12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he, what? Lest he fall. You remember when Jesus told his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Remember that? None of the disciples believed it. Peter was so brash to say, even if all fall away, Lord, I will never fall away. It led Jesus to say, well, truly, truly, I say to you, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus knew their frailty. And he knew the Scriptures which says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And he knew that the sheep were going to scatter. But yet still unfazed. This whole, whole announcement. For the rooster crows, three times, you're going to deny me. Peter says, no, I won't. Even if I die with you, I will not deny you. And it's interesting. It says in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter whatever, 26, it says all the disciples were saying the same thing. Matthew was saying, no, I will die with you, Jesus. Bartholomew was saying, I will die with you, Jesus. John was saying, I will die with you. And it's like this murmur, we're all going to die with Jesus if he's got to die. We're in this. I mean, we are all in. We are committed. They're all saying the same thing. But you know the story. When the crowds came to arrest Jesus, all the disciples left him and fled. Now the credit of Peter, at least he remained far enough as the courtyard to watch what was going on. And yet he denied him three times by different people sitting around the fire, even some little girls denying him three times. And then the rooster crowed. And I say this, such is the picture of our lives when we trust in our own strength. We can boast of all the mighty things we do, but we need to realize it's God who's going to keep us and protect us. And He will. There's nothing, neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, or any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. And don't be clueless like the disciples were, but rather trust in the Lord to guard you and protect you. And may this even be a prayer you pray. Jesus, keep me in your name. It's a great prayer to pray. The hymn writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What's the solution to that? The antidote? Keep praying. Lord, keep me in your name. Keep me in your name. I'm prone to wander. Keep me in your name. Keep me in your name. And God will be faithful and will draw you back. We need guarding and protecting because we live in this world. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, there it is, that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I believe there's a word for us here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Church filled with many homeschoolers. Let's hear this, what it says. There are two ways you can take verse 15. One is to believe that Jesus is going to keep you and guard you from the evil one, so you engage freely in the world, right? Mix with the people of the world, be entertained by the things of the world, read the same things the world reads, watch the same things the world watches, do the same things the world does, and just say, hey, Jesus requested not to take us out of the world. We need to be in the world, so let's be in the world and just trust that Jesus is going to protect us from that. 
The problem with that is that too often you will succumb to those things. Know your frailty and weakness and seek to keep a, a healthy arm's distance from the world. That's a danger maybe of some. I don't think that's a danger of most of us. So that is a danger of some. The danger of most of us are way over on this side. The other way to do that is to say, oh, everything's bad in the world. It's all bad. Exclude yourself from anything except that which has a Christian label on it. Right? So cut off your newspapers. Cut off your table, cable television. Cut off the movies from your home. Only read Christian literature. And the danger of this approach, which by the way, I, I'm in that camp. A bunch of homeschoolers, we can be here. The danger of this camp is that we miss the first part of verse 15 where Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Basically, acknowledge, hey, we're in the world and we are there. How easy is it to cut it all off and have our holy huddle? And I would just encourage you to live in the tension of verse 15. Realize that we are in the world and Jesus wants us in the world. In fact, it says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. Jesus didn't send us into our Christian huddles. He sent us into the world. And to some extent, we are called to engage the world like Jesus did. I mean, He engaged the world so much that He was called a friend of sinners. And, and He was blasphemed by the religious community for the things that He was doing in the world. Calling Him a glutton and a drunkard, a Sabbath breaker, because He was with the world. But I think the key is this, that we are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. Don't ever get to the point where you love the world or the things in the world, as John Chapter 1 John 2.15 says. So let, let's live in that tension, okay? That, that Jesus calls us to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And we're called to be protected from the world while we're there. Too often we can just exclude ourselves. But that misses 15. I, I think it's got a word for us. Alright, here's our third point, which kind of dovetails off of this one. Jesus prays for glory. Prays for protection. 30 prays for, for sanctification. Sanctification is the struggle that we have with the world. The, the world would pull us one way and God would pull us the other way. I say walking in God's ways is a path of sanctification. Look at verse 17. It says this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to purify, set apart, make holy. And what Jesus wants here is He wants His disciples to be holy people. He wants to be those who follow Him, such is the will of God. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Such is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, your purity, your righteousness. When God gave counsel to Israel, He said, You should be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holy, pure, holy, separate, holy, distinct from the world. When God saves us, He begins a process to purify us. And He's praying for that process. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, when we're saved, we're sanctified perfectly, positionally before God, but there is this progressive working out of, of, of shedding sin and, and, and developing holy habits in your heart. And some of us progress quickly and some of us progress more slowly, but all believers see some type of progress. And Jesus gets behind us in that progress. He wants to help us in that. He's praying us along that we might love Him above all others and be so infatuated with His message that we can't help but to speak it to others. Now notice the process by which sanctification takes place. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. 
Your Word is truth. There's the sanctifying agent is truth. It is the Word of God. To clean our dishes, we use what? Detergent. To clean our windows, we use Windex. To clean our drains, we use Drano. To clean our garbage cans, we spray Lysol. To, to wash our hair, we put shampoo. Okay, got that one. To clean our teeth, we use toothpaste. What about to cleanse our lives? What do we use? The Word of God. Works like this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. It's his truthful word. In his truthful word, God instructs us how to live. And the Bible's filled with commands of how it is to live. How to worship, how to love, how to parent, how to live in harmony, how to have core attitudes we ought to have, how to walk in the way of wisdom. But you need to catch this. The Bible is not merely commands that God gives and we are expected to obey those commands. The Bible isn't just this giant rule book in the sky that says, do all these things and then you'll be sanctified. If that's your perspective, the Bible's a big rule book, you're misguided in what the Bible is. A great perspective of it, we, we got the fathers and sons, we gathered together to do a little bit of reading. We've been reading Joshua Harris's book, and um, he was talking about the Bible and put it in a good, a really good way that I just want to make this point about sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. All right? This was chapter, what is this, chapter 4 we read. So some of you this is review, but from, I th- it's healthy enough for all of us to read. A.J. Jacobs makes a living being a human guinea pig. He puts himself through offbeat, strange life experiments and then writes about them. Once, for an article in Esquire called My Outsourced Life, Jacob hired a team of people in Bang- Bangalore, India, to live his life for him. They answered his emails, called his co-workers, argued with his wife, and read bedtime stories to his son. His first book was about the year he spent reading the entire Encyclopedia Britannica in a quest to become the smartest person in the world. A more recent book entitled The Year of Living Biblically follows a similar pattern. It's a story how Jacobs attempted to follow every rule in the Bible as literally as possible for an entire year. You should know that Jacobs is an agnostic. I'm officially Jewish, he writes, but I'm Jewish in the same way that Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant which is to say, not very. Jacob started his experiment with a visit to a Christian bookstore in midtown Manhattan. He needed to purchase a Bible and supplemental study tools. A soft-spoken salesman named Chris helped him sort through the different sizes of Bibles and linguistic options, and then he pointed out a unique Bible version for teenage girls. That's for you, you girls right here. That was designed to look exactly like a 17 magazine. And Chris said, this one's good if you're on the subway and are too embarrassed to be seen reading the Bible because no one will ever know it's a Bible. And Jacob's response is one of my favorite lines of the book. He says, you know you're in a secular city when it's considered more acceptable for a grown man to read a teen girl's magazine than the Bible. From an agnostic, very interesting. Jacob's left the store with two shopping bags full of scripture. He then proceeded to read through the entire Bible in four weeks. As he read, he wrote down every rule or direction they came across, big and small. That included the obvious ones like the Ten Commandments and love your neighbor, but also lesser Old Testament laws for diet and ritual cleanliness. His goal was to take the Bible at face value as literally as possible and put it into practice. 
as you can imagine, the outcome was often hilarious. For example, because the book of Leviticus says that men should leave the edges of their beards unshaven, Jacob stopped shaving. Within a few months, he looked like a lost member of ZZ Top. He stopped wearing clothing made of fixed, mixed fibers. He played a ten-string harp. He refused to shake hands with women who might be ceremonially unclean because of their monthly cycle. Possibly his most outlandish activity was his attempt to stone adulterers. He accomplished this by trying to fling tiny pebbles at strangers without their noticing. Evidently, Jacobs assumed that just about any New Yorker is an adulterer. His book is a gimmick, but it also raises serious questions about what it means to live by the Bible. Do growing a beard and playing a harp equal living biblically? More important, how should we think about the Bible? Does Scripture have the authority to tell us how to live, or is the Bible just a bunch of archaic rules and rituals that have no meaning in our modern world? And I just want to read then, he highlights this uh, quote from uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones' book, The Bible Storybook, where she gives a picture. Here's what the Bible is, and here's what truth is, and here's what's going to sanctify you. It's not the rules that A.J. Jacobs tried to follow. Here's what it is. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should do and shouldn't do. And I include this in the Weekly Word, so if you read the Weekly Word, this is repeat. But this is good. You can pick it up there. The Bible certainly does have rules in it, They show how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the Bible people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a faraway country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, his everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is that it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. That's what the Bible's about. It's not a big rule book. It's about a story of a a God who loves, who comes and redeems. And so you say, how are we sanctified by that story? Well, here's how we're sanctified. We're sanctified in truth. We're sanctified by a story. We're sanctified by grace, if you will. Rather than, rather than authoritative rules coming down. Here's how you're sanctified. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. The grace of God instructs us. What does instruct us? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. God's grace teaches us how to pursue sanctification. How the Bible works. All the commands in the Bible flow from the gospel of grace. Everything we do flows from the gospel. Or as Elise Fitzpatrick says, which some of you went to a, a conference with Elise Fitzpatrick this past weekend, Right? Some of you, I know Yvonne, you did, and um, others. Uh, yeah, Vicki, you did. Right, Michelle, you did. 
so others maybe. But here, here's what she says. She says the imperatives are always preceded by the indicatives. And, and what I mean by that, what she means by that, which is exactly right, is that the Bible always predicates what we should do on what God has done. It's always, if you will, it's God's work first and then it's our response to Him. I read a chapter she wrote about Ephesians, the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. It says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the indicative is that God in Christ has forgiven you. The imperative is that we ought to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And our kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiving one another is all predicated upon the indicative that God has forgiven us. Or, Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. It, it, it's our aspect of being beloved children that, that then gives us the, the desire and the want and, and the foundation for the indicative to be imitators of God. And sometimes, you know, if we're just looking through the Bible for command, tell me what to do, tell me what to do, tell me what to do, that's a wrong approach. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is, tell me what I should believe, and in believing that, God will stir your heart in grace, and then you'll do what the Bible calls you to do. That's how you're sanctified in truth. And so when you think about the realities of the gospel of grace, that Christ came into the flesh, lived a perfectly sinless life, and yet we crucified Him. He was crucified undeservingly. But it was through that crucifixion that then we are cleansed from our sins. He, by His sacrifice, He purchased a sinful people for Himself. And upon dying on the cross, He redeemed us from our sins. We who deserve nothing gained everything at the cross of Christ. And that story, as it goes out, will sanctify you. It will give you a passion and a heart for God. When you come to grasp these things, the glory of Jesus coming, you'll compete, be compelled to live for God, not out of rules, not out of authority, but out of love and response to Him. You'll be liberated to love and serve the Lord out of delight and joy. That's how the sanctification works. And that's how this Word, you know, He talks about the sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is the truth. And what's He talking about? He's talking about the Word, the message, the message of the Gospel that He brought. So there it is, sanctify them. Alright, my fourth point this morning. Jesus prays for glory, protection, sanctification, and now unity. Unity comes several times in this prayer. Um, let's just start in verse 20, even though it came a little bit before sometimes in purpose clauses. But verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Alright, now we need to stop there and just pause. Hope you realize what he's saying here. He's saying, okay, I've been praying for my 11 disciples here, because the son of perdition has been off. I've prayed my 11 disciples. And these prayer requests I've given you, guard them and um, sanctify them. It's primarily to the 11 disciples, though certainly by application it applies to us. Okay? But applying to them. But now he steps back and says this. He says, I'm not just praying for these, but I'm praying for those who would believe in me through their word. In other words, he's praying for anyone who believes. Jesus is praying here for Rock Valley Bible Church. And it is interesting that, that here when he says he's praying, he, he's, he's specifically not praying for the world. Verse 9, 
I ask on their behalf, that is the disciples, I do not ask on behalf of the world. When Jesus made this high priestly prayer, He wasn't praying this for everybody. He wasn't praying this for Judas Iscariot. He wasn't praying this for Pontius Pilate. He was praying for the disciples who believe. He says, but I'm praying, verse 9, of those whom you have given me, and they are yours, the disciples that that God gave to Jesus. And he's, he's also praying here, verse 20 it says, I'm praying for those who believe in me through this word. This is a prayer that Jesus is making for believers. He, he's not praying this for Joe Sixpack out there, all right? He's praying for believers, praying for us who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, if that doesn't stir your soul, I'm not sure anything will. But th- this is God's heart and desire for us, for believers. Alright, here's what he prays. The request comes in verse 21. He prays for unity. I pray that they may all be one. There it is. There's the call to unity. It's a prayer for unity among the believers, among the household of God. And in many ways, fundamentally, it's a call for love. The only way to have unity, genuine unity he's talking about here, is to love. As Paul said, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You want unity? Then put on love. Without love, you're not going to have unity. I think there's talking about mutual love for one another. But it goes deeper than that. All right? This unity he's praying for it goes deeper than just loving one another. Again, love isn't even here in this passage. And in fact, he's praying for something even, even deeper than an external unity. Look what he's doing. He's praying for a trinity unity if I can use that phrase, a trinity unity, verse 21, that they may be one even as... Here's the comparison. He prays for us to be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so the world may believe that you sent me even as you, Father, in me and I in you. There is a, there's a unity among the Trinity that we share in as believers. The, the phrase Paul often uses is that we are in Christ. He uses as believers in Him. We are, we are wrapped up and enfolded in the Trinity, in the Godhead in some sense. We in Him. And that's the kind of unity he's talking about. He's talking about perfect harmony, perfect love, perfect unity. That exists among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now each different... The Father has a different role, then the Son has a role, then the Spirit has a role, but yet they're all unified, and they're all one. In fact, they're so unified that they are one. Now, if you understand that, that's great. Um, Yvonne was telling me yesterday that just our daughter Carissa, at six years old, is just starting to ask questions about the Trinity. You said that she said, Stephanie did. Who did I say? Carissa. No, not you. You're older than six. Just asking questions. And Avani, she said something about how, okay, six years old, and she's saying, Mom, is Jesus God? And he said, yes. But, but he's the Son of God. Yes, but he's also God. But how can he be? And she's just starting, to, just starting to wrestle with these things. And so, parents, think about that. I don't think Stephanie's anything special. Six-year-olds wrestle with the Trinity. Okay. I remember a young boy wrestling with predestination when I didn't know anything. Hey, has everything been predestined? I don't know. Uh, I remember as a little boy taking a popsicle stick outside the yard and kind of throwing it up in the air and said, did God predestine that? And kind of asking those questions. So don't doubt 
what your children are questioning and thinking about and wrestling through and interact with them. You'd be amazed even what they pick up from sermons deep like I give. Trinity. We believers ought to have a unity, Jesus praying, that is shaped and molded like the Trinity. Now, in some sense, that is, that is like way, be, no way, you know, but, but this is what Jesus is praying for. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 4 speaks about just the church. Now, the leaders equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's a sense where the church is, is, is not there. And, and I'm not, in some sense, we're not even close. So it's not like these things have been obtained or we have them, but that's what Jesus is praying for. He's praying that we would have the same sort of unity that the Trinity has. That's wild. We're talking here, I think, about an organic unity that's deeper than a common interest group, that's deeper than flesh and blood. Now, I don't don't know how to talk about this unity other than to say let's talk about various other kinds of unity. I just know the older I am, the more I see that there are bazillion things that you can be interested in this world. And uh, in every single one of those things, there's certainly like a club that you can be involved with those type of things. So as I kind of look out here among, I'm sure there are are people here who are involved in things. Like Phil, I know that you're like in a hunting hunting club with your dogs and things like that, right? Um, You're also involved in some cross-training, right? Uh, John, I know you play bagpipes, and sometimes you're getting your bagpipes along the, along the street, right? It's the 4th of July. You'll be out there in your kilt and everything like that, right? Uh, other people's interests, I'm just trying to think. Maybe you've got some special, special thing. I, I know that the Iversons, you're involved in like a running club of some type, right? You run, I don't know, what's it called? Is it called something? You forget. I remember, but I know that uh, Ethan, you're involved in baseball. We got baseball teams, and even I was talking with Conrad earlier. His game starts Saturday. Left you there. There, there are other things that you can be involved with, right? Hallstrom Co-op. You know, you're involved in homeschooling. You get involved in that. I remember one time we were in California, out of Berkeley, and the wind coming off, and we saw these guys in kites. They're they're flying kites. They got these whole clubs. They got websites devoted to these kites and things we have. All these kind of things. I know at Midway Village, uh, every year there's like a modern railroad show and all these railroad collectors can kind of come in and show their wares. I was um, Friday afternoon, late afternoon, I was in a pool shop here in town and uh, kind of the owner there, his name is Vaughn. I got to kind of meet him and talk with him. He said, oh yeah, you know, every Friday night we kind of come, we got some guys here like this. And he said, hey, you want to play a game? I'm like, okay, play a game. And we start playing. He says, um, so what, 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 do you, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a pastor, and so that, that kind of hit it. And then as we played a little bit longer, he said, oh, you play pretty well for a pastor. That's what his was. And um, uh, another, another group that's funny is this, the, the Red Hat Society. I'm not sure if you heard of that before. I remember one time we were out to dinner in California and the, the spaghetti factory out there eating with Yvonne's cousin and kind of the kids there. And in comes this group of like 25, 30 women and, I'd never known this before, but they all had these red hats and these purple outfits on. Have you ever seen this go take place? Yeah? I'd never seen that before, and, and it, was, it was pretty impressive that all of these people together is pretty, pretty wild, but there's a unity there. They come together for a common goal, right? Your baseball team wants to win games. Your orchestra, if you play a music, you know, wants to put on a, a band, wants to put on a gig. The Red Hat Society wants to have a good time together. The hunting club wants to go hunting. All these... But what's interesting about this unity, 
it stops as soon as the event is over. It's only, it's only together for this common purpose, this common goal, this common, common thing. That as soon as that's done, it's over. And that's not the unity that he's talking about here in John 17. He's praying for a deeper unity than merely social organizations. And so I think about, well, what else is unified? Well, a family's pretty unified. Think about the family. Family lives together, eats together, share bathrooms together, share clothes, hand-me-downs with one another, bicycles they share, household duties they share, family also shares some DNA. Brothers and sisters look like each other. There's just a, a unity there. And I think, though, that what Jesus is describing is even deeper than family because Jesus said, you want to be my disciples, you must hate father and mother and brother and sister and follow me. He's desiring something even deeper than that. He wants a, a trinity unity among believers. Where, where the essence is harmony on all things. There's love and there's sharing and bonding and affection. There's just a harmony and peace. And I do believe the early church modeled this greatly. Think about this. Day after day they gathered with mutual love... Acts 4.44 And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions were sharing with them as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. There you're talking about just the resources shared, giving meals shared. And I just ask, ask you, do you have any type of this unity in your life? Just a, a sharing, a practice of giving of your resources to other believers. You see a need, so you give of what you have. You ever given what you have to other people? I think we're so affluent we just give a little, but here the idea was someone had a need, we just, we just give it. Is it your practice take something from your own, something some, some wants, and just say, here, why don't you just take that? It looks like you need it more than I do. So you have it. Do you know anything about day by day, continuing together with one mind among the believers, just day after day after day, you're just with Christians and with other believers, with a unity that's just sharing deeply with one another? Do you know that kind of unity? You share meals with others? Or you just, uh, we just do our own thing. And, you know, su- Sunday morning we come and then the rest of the week we're here. He's talking about daily with the brotherhood. And I'm not, sure who the, I'm not telling you who that has to be, but I'm just talking about an extension that's beyond family that is doing life together as a church. Does it take place for you? Does it take place at Rock Valley Bible Church? That's the unity that Jesus is praying for. And, and I say when this unity takes place, oh, how sweet it is. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil. We talked about last week, the anointing oil at the, the priest of, of Aaron being poured with the anointed from, from Moses. It's like the oil coming down upon the beard of Aaron, even on the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which is the life source for Israel, coming down from the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. There's a blessing in unity. And that's what Jesus is praying for. And I say this, isn't it sad that one of the places in all the world where disunity is most visible is within the church? 
So I say we haven't even begun to taste what Jesus is praying for. But it is one of our greatest needs. I hear of church splits often. I've yet to hear of a quilting guild split, though. I think there's a reason for that because the, the unity that exists among believers is deeper than any other unity that takes place in any other place. The, the unity it's called for is a complete love for one another, complete devotion to one another in all matters of life, and yet we're sinful beings and so we can't love that deeply, that perfectly, and disunity takes place among the believers. I've experienced it and sadly I've caused it much to my own pain. It hurts. Trinity unity is difficult because we're all sinners in need of grace and the only way that genuine unity takes place is when our grace abounds and overflows towards one another. Thus we need to be sanctified. Maybe Jesus certainly knew the order, right? protection, sanctification, and then unity because those things must take place. We need to be protected and we sanctified in that protection and that's where the unity is going to come. And I think Jesus knew the difficulties of unity. I think that's why he prayed for it three times. It came once in 21. It's going to come again, kind of this recurring theme in 22 and 23. Look there. It says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, Jesus speaking, that they may be one just as we are. There it is. He wants the unity. God's given him glory. He's given it to them that they may be one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. It's the same thing, right? Trinity unity. That they may be one just as we are one, verse 22. And verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. It's just a high call, but let, let, me just say, let me just say that also with this. With this unity comes a purpose. One of the things that comes out of John 17 is a missionary emphasis. It's, a, it's an eyes-out emphasis upon the world and impacting the world for Christ. And the word purpose of unity is for world evangelization. Look at what it says at the end of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you sent me. They may be unified so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23. That the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Unity among believers has an evangelistic effect upon the world. Those without Christ look in the church, see its unity, and it makes a powerful effect. They might be saying something like, like this. There's no way that such a people could love each other so much. I mean, all I know in my family is strife and contentions and hardships. There's something else going on there. I, it's got to be miraculous. I've got to see it. I need to understand it. And so they inquire. And what does the church say? The church says, you know why we love each other? We love because He first loved us and God's love for us is immense. We're sinners deserving God's wrath. We're sinners deserving hell and yet God loved us with a crazy sort of love. Why? We don't know. But God loves us as much as He loves Jesus Christ who lived perfectly and deserved all that love that He got. How can we not love those whom God loves? God loves them like they love Jesus who am I to make them my enemy? No, of course we love each other. And you might be saying, does, does God really love us as much as He loves Jesus? Well, look at verse 23. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so the world may know. This is what the world needs to know. That you sent me and you loved them even as you have loved me. 
astonishing, right? When we think of Jesus, yeah, he deserves God's love, absolutely. But we get the love that God loves Jesus with. That's the gospel. And that ought to stir your sanctification. And people, if they see that, should have a changing effect upon their life in this world of people hurting so badly. See, they may always say, I want that kind of love. They come into the church and know it, brought to Christ. And that's the mission of the church, to show the reality of God's love in us that the world would see. And perhaps one of the greatest deterrents to the church impacting the world boils down to one easy thing. We don't love each other. As we don't love each other, our message is invalidated. So we don't put God's love on display, have a weak impact on society. Well, I've got one more point. I'm going to go really quickly on this. Jesus prays for glory, prays for protection, prays for sanctification, prays for unity. Finally, he prays for presence. Not presence, children, okay? It's not like he's praying, oh, Santa, please bring me this gift. He's not praying for presence. He's praying for presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. Presence. That's the only word I come up with, but be with you. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, experiencing those who believe are the same ones who have been given him, be with me. There it is. Presence. Be with me where I am. That's what Jesus is desiring. He's praying that they might be with He's praying for Rock Valley Bible Church that we might be with Jesus. Are there people in your life who you like to be with? Yep. I think every single one of us, the people in our life we just like to be with, you're going to have something take place this afternoon. We say, I'm really looking forward to this. You go to your parents' place, you go to your friend's place, you're going to be with your family, just looking forward. Or you know, some, some lunch date you have with somebody says, I'm really looking forward to that. Or somebody coming over Thursday, I'm really looking forward to that. I know what often happens in our, our church here is that we have the Sunday kid swap. I tell you, I... I, I um, I rarely come home with all my kids after Sunday. And uh, it's rare that I have only my kids on Sunday. I mean, it's just, it's rare that I have other than my kids. So in other words, we almost always have kids coming into our home. Be- why? Because they want to be with each other, and so they, they scheme and they treasure, and then they come to me like this. Um, Becca and I were thinking... Um, and the reeds are going to be in town. Is that going to... Because they want to be with one another. Well, catch this. Jesus wants to be with us. He wants to be with us. We might think, oh, yeah, we just want to be with Jesus. No, Jesus wants to be with us. Father, I desire thee also when you give me. Be with me where I am. That's what He's desiring. You ever had a time of separation? Husbands and wives, right? You're, you're off on a business trip someplace and your wife is at home with the kids or vice versa this weekend where Vaughn is gone, I'm at home, right? Isn't the time of coming together sweet? Isn't it nice? Now is a time of separation from Jesus and us. And he wants that time where we're reunited again. That's what he's praying. John 14, verses 1 through 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For if I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. I'm off preparing this place, but 
But I'm not preparing it for myself. I'm preparing it for you because I really want to be with you. What an amazing thing. Why? Why does Jesus want us to be with him? So that, verse 24, they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants us to see his glory. Prayed for glory in verse 1, verse 5, and now he wants us to be with him that we might see his glory because our happiness is tied up in seeing Jesus glorified. Well, such are the prayers of Jesus. I believe he's praying for these things right now. He's praying his Father, God, glorify, glorify me. He's praying, protect, protect those who believe in me. Sanctify them, Father. Unify them. And I long for you to bring them to me so they can be with me to see my glory. That's the role of our, our great high priest. So let's pray. we got one last song. Lord, we just scratched the surface here and, and I pray that you'd stir us in the truths of the gospel of your great love for us, which comes right out here in um, John 17, desiring to have us and desiring to keep us and desiring to cleanse us and desiring to be with us. So uh, I pray, Lord, these words would seek deep into our hearts that you'd encourage us this week as we seek to exalt and glorify Jesus. We pray for these matters of unity. I know that I've been pricked as how I need to seek that better and pray that you'd help us as a church body, to see that and experience that. And it all flows from loving Jesus first. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.